Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone does not have them, he is short-sighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So, we're going to look at this uh, as a question, uh, and it's this, uh, why would you like to change? Uh, we're doing this series on change, and we're looking uh, at a different perspective each Sunday. My impression of human nature is that often the majority of us don't want to change, and it might well be that sort of a question. We as a part of the, the building, if you like, we put it like this, that we moved from the safe zone into the faith zone. And you might think from the safe one to the one which isn't safe. Actually, the faith is safer in reality. Faith is a bit like uh, the muscles that you have. You need to exercise them. And if you exercise muscles that you haven't used for a while, you'll find that they become a bit painful, a bit stiff. But the more you exercise, the stronger, the more supple they are. I saw Dr. Coppin this morning circumventing the recreation ground, and at a certain point he looks at his watch to see if he was faster than last Sunday. Uh, David, we're very impressed. Maybe you need people to keep you company. And, uh, but if you, the point is, muscles, you exercise them they become stronger. You don't, they can become flabby and weak. And that is certainly true with faith. Faith is like that, like muscles that need to be stretched and exercised. The problem is that often we're under pressure in all sorts of ways, subtle ways. There was a young preacher who was called to his first pastorate in rural Kentucky. And on the first Sunday, he came into the pulpit, a bit like this, and he preached against smoking. After the service, the elders had a little get-together and took him aside and said, Young man, I want you to know that a third of your congregation grow tobacco. 
just thought you should know. The following Sunday, he preached against drinking and the perils of alcohol. The elders promptly informed him, young man, this is Jack Daniel's country. And many people distill whiskey. The third Sunday, he preached against the perils of gambling. The elders, you need elders sometimes. Young man, this is Kentucky. I'll have you know that many in your congregation breed thoroughbred racehorses. He says, oh, I didn't know that. Well, you do now. So, the fourth Sunday, this young man finally getting the message, he preaches a sermon on the dangers inherent in deep-sea diving in international waters in rural Kentucky. Now, that's pressure. The point is this, though. Though the young man wanted to be discreet, and there's a, a great benefit in discretion, yet if it limits him and his remarks and his sermons, to truth that is always palatable, always agreeable, always politically correct, he becomes utterly irrelevant. And that is the danger of us not exercising faith, because when we do, it does impact other people. It's never done in isolation. The pressure is always on, because to exercise faith is to go against the tide, always. And what we have here in this reading, and we're not going to do uh, too many cross-references, it would be useful to keep your Bible open. What, what we have in 2 Peter, in these 11 verses, is the substance now of the sermon. This is, uh, I think, the third in eight sermons that we're looking on the challenge of change. And it makes, it seems to me, one overwhelming, supreme assumption. Hopefully the assumption is right, and it's this. That every Christian, at any time, at any point in their lives, need to embrace the challenge, not just of change, but of constant change. We all know the danger of simply getting stuck, and we know the danger of going through the motions either in our quiet time, or indeed in prayer, or any other time. Indeed, I think we could say this, that the whole of life, think of the whole of life, secular and sacred, practical and spiritual, work and church, family and society, the whole of life is, has this big challenge, how do we handle change? How do we handle change? Or perhaps you could put it another way. Is it possible for us, instead of sort of handling it, for us to harness it, to see this as something that God is doing in our lives, not to resent it? Some of us perhaps are more prone than others to just enjoying maintaining the status quo. So at this point, when you think about this, the, the, the this sort of challenge, 
the first reaction could be to sit back and let things happen. Just let them happen. I think and have a sort of acceptance of change. What will be, will be. I think that's too passive. Just simply letting things happen. The biggest challenge when we think about change is this. Not so much to sit back and let things happen, but to stand up and make things happen. Make things happen. And I would call that active faith, okay? Can we move, if you like, then, not so much from the safe zone to the faith zone, but from the passive zone to the active zone, the zone where you do things. Faith does things. It doesn't stop at saying things. Being correct isn't enough. Faith does things. Moving from the passive change to the active change, and that's the pivotal verse in verse 5 that you have. For this very reason, or indeed for the reasons I'm saying, what? Here it is. This is the exercise of faith. Make every effort to add to your faith. Just think of the thousands of people on the London Marathon this morning. What a lovely day it is for that. If they just turned up, just suppose, just for example, as an extreme example, they just turned up and they said, okay, well, I know they'd have to book and go through the system. But they turned up, they'd done no preparation, uh, they'd been um, drinking beer and eating fish and chips, and uh, there they are. Now, how long are they going to get? What's it going to be like? The people who've turned up today in the majority have been preparing and training and training and training. And that will determine the outcome, for sure. Now, the Christian life is like that. In a way, it's not a sprint, it is a marathon. And part of this preparation, being here like this. So, how do we add to our faith? How do we increase our fitness, if you like? Well, this is where Peter is very practical and very helpful. So, remember the context uh, of this faith. If you look in verse uh, 1 and 3, uh, verse 1. Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to, to those who through the righteousness of God our Saviour, Jesus Christ, has received a faith as precious as ours. Okay? We are part of that community of faith. Look at verse 3. His divine power has given everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his glory and goodness. Okay. Faith. Do you remember when Jesus was dealing with his disciples on one occasion? He challenged them, almost rebuked them, to say, why is your faith so little? Why is it so small? It is faith. It's authentic. It's real. But it's a weak faith. What we need to do is to strengthen our faith. Strengthen our faith. It's okay criticizing Peter for, for sinking in the sea, but at least he got out of the boat, didn't he? Better to make mistakes and learn than do nothing. That's sage advice from parents and indeed from God's Word, surely. Weak faith. Strong faith. Little faith. Big faith. Your faith, my faith, and this is what I want us really to catch this morning, is this. 
supremely and above all needs exercise. Exercise. I was talking to uh, a man this week in the village who is, his garden backs onto uh, quite a lot large garden as well, and there are two dogs who get no exercise. And what they do all day is to bark and bark and bark. They're distressed. They need exercise. It's almost cruel not to give exercise. And likewise, our faith needs exercise. Otherwise, it's going to be flabby. So, look at verse 5. You see, I know I'm... I know I'm driving it, but it is important. Look, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. That's exercise. Add to it. Effort. Effort. C.S. Lewis said an interest. well, he said lots of interesting things. He said this. When you think of the, the Christian life, he, he said, put first things first, and you get second things thrown in. However, put second things first, and you lose out on both. Now, if you take nothing else away from the first, take that. So, you know, faith has certain priorities. So, let me repeat that so that you can apply it where you are. Put first things first, and you get second things thrown in. Go for the lesser, live on the second, and you will lose out on both. And don't we know it? Don't we know it? Add to your faith. Add to it. You need to do that. You're not working for faith. You're working out that faith which God has given you as a gift of His grace. We need to stand back, don't we? And in all honesty, with a sense of humble, humble awe and say. Beware of the tyranny of second things. Beware of the tyranny of second things. They're not wrong. They just rob us. They take the cutting edge from us of greater things. Let me put it to you in a very practical way. The second things, they're different to different people, of course. There are different pressure points in life. We know that. But these second things, you know, they demand our attention. They're immediate. They shout in our face. They distract us from the main thing, deafening us to the real priorities. And we just settle for the lesser. Add to your faith. Don't blame your church. Don't blame other people. Add to your faith. You do that. Add to it. Well, then, of course, the characteristic of um, Peter is that he is terribly practical, isn't he? And this sermon is practical for that reason, I guess, taking the cue from him. From verses 5 to 7, we, we link up God's power and our participation. And often there's a missing link. So we need to reconnect God's power, our participation. I want to uh, quote to you from this uh, nice little uh, commentary, and it begins, uh, Warren Wiersbe, some of you will know lots of his books, and he begins this commentary by saying this. Let me just read it to you. If anybody, if, if anybody in the early church knew the importance of being alert, it was the Apostle Peter. 
he had a tendency in his early years to feel overconfident when danger was near and to overlook his Lord's warnings. He rushed ahead when he should have waited. He slept when he should have prayed. He talked when he should have listened. He was courageous but careless. Well, here is Peter, and in a way he's saying, I've done my apprenticeship, but I can so easily slip back into my old ways. I'm only going to highlight these uh, because I was just calculating. There's seven words there, and I thought if I took three minutes on each, that's a long time, isn't it? And the chairs are not all that comfortable. So we won't, we won't do too much. Just, you know, run through. But a cynic has described his observation of Christian experience like this. An initial spasm followed by chronic inertia. An initial spasm of enthusiasm followed by chronic inertia. That's a very telling and a damning statement if it's true. So as an encouragement to us to becoming more useful and more fruitful, if you like, we have the list in verses 5 to 7. Can I just say that they're not comprehensive? There are seven, and a typical in Jewish mind, seven's a perfect number, could have been 14, couldn't it, or more. Let's just focus on, on what they are. Let's try to think of them in terms of character traits, characteristics of our lives as people of faith. If you like, traits that are worth our diligent effort. It will pay rewards, not only for us, but for the people with whom we live as well. Now, let's begin then with in verse 5, and obviously faith is uh, assumed. You can't add to what you haven't got, okay? So, make every effort to add to your faith. Where will I start? Where will I start? Well, this is where uh, Peter is very helpful to us. You might want to start with love. He ends with that. You might want to start with patience. doesn't include that. So, faith. Faith surely is the foundation of the Christian life. Let me use a, a, an illustration. It's rather obvious. In a house or in a building, the building that we've having in, in the church, if, they, if the builders don't lay a very firm and secure foundation, then we move in, and it's really good. It will be. And it's functional. And we can do much more than we did before. But in the course of time, you will know what will happen. If they haven't laid a good foundation, there'll be perhaps a few cracks coming. And uh, they'll come and paper over or plaster them and say, it's okay, it's settling down. And then the cracks get bigger. The problem isn't up there, is it? The problem's down there. And that surely is the point. It's the big assumption here is this, that our lives are built on a firm foundation, a living faith in a living Lord, the Lord Jesus. That's assumed. So then, let's work this out. 
these character traits. Faith is foundational to the Christian life. Now we need to add to it, or if you like, what he means by add is increase, grow, develop, cultivate. Yesterday, Hannah and I were in the garden all day, digging, weeding, pruning, preparing, didn't sow anything, didn't plant anything, all preparation. So if you saw all our hard work, it wouldn't be any different. Apart from the fact that if, as a gardener or a farmer, you don't have a long-term view, well, you're not going to do it, are you? But you must, because you're preparing for the future, surely. So what do we need to do? We need to add to our faith. Let's look at these very quickly, then. Number one, goodness. Some people call this uh, moral excellence, or it's the undergirding under of courage. Having courage is implied in the, in the classical Greek word. What Peter is doing here is encouraging us to strengthen our faith so that we will not be swayed or discouraged when the trials of life will inevitably come. Goodness. Jesus went about the commentary on him doing good. Barnabas, who was Paul's right-hand man, was known as a good man, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Goodness. Goodness. Knowledge. This is a tricky one because it seems to imply uh, being clever. I know some of your young folk, are, are going, one or two of you here this morning, I know you need three A's to get into the college that you're going. And you are going to work really hard. And you are. They don't give it to you for good attendance, do they? But this is not like that. Knowledge isn't so much the accumulation of knowledge. It will include that, for sure. This, this Greek word, gnosis, really means practical knowledge. It's Peter's favorite word. Although he's so practical, a hands-on man. Let me ask you to do an exercise. If, if when, when you have a moment, read through to Peter, and i tell you what I do, you don't have to do this, have a, a highlight like this, and you will be able to highlight 13 times the word knowledge is used. And it's nothing to do with being clever. It's how we apply our faith in the different situations in which we find ourselves. It's his favorite word. Moving on. Self-control. Self-control. What we could do, we all could do a bit more of this. It, it literally means the ability to take a grip on ourselves. One of the things I picked up when we lived in Glasgow for five years was this. They used to say if, they, if you faced a challenge, get a grip, was a, one of those uh, one-liners, which I never forgot. Get a grip. Do something. Don't just stay there. Self-control is like that. The ability to take a grip on ourselves. Are we going to master our problems, or are problems going to master us? Is it work that masters our lives? Food? Sex, money, kudos. What's our ultimate concern? 
in and of themselves, they're not wrong. No one's saying these things are wrong. But they can master us, dominate our lives. It's easy to speak like this about self-control. I, like you, am a work in progress. But you see what Peter's trying to do? He says, okay, you have this living faith. Now then, goodness, knowledge, self-control. Let's come to this. This is a, an interesting one. Perseverance. Uh, Chrysostom calls it the queen of virtues. Perseverance. It isn't simply hanging in. It isn't just being patient. Though things are good. Let me try to keep these two together. Let's stay. Go, just go back in your mind to self-control and link it up with perseverance because they, they are complementary in this sense. If self-control is the challenge of handling pleasures, what we would call, okay, temptations, temptations, then perseverance relates to pressures, trials. Is that helpful? Temptations, self-control. Perseverance, relates to pressures, trials that come into our lives. Suddenly, a sudden illness, an unexpected tragedy, a harrowing breakup in a relationship, inappropriate pursuit of pornography on the internet, self-control, perseverance. You are adding to your faith. Adding to it, they seem to be right at the middle of this list and complement each other very well. It would be worth just making a cross-reference. Turn back to the New Testament, to the book of James, about four pages in your Bible. Just turn that way. If you've got to Hebrews, you've gone too far. I don't, I don't find this easy, but let me give it to you in the context of what we are saying here, of perseverance how it relates to pressures of life, trials, if you like. Or you have inwardly a profound sense of the injustice that has gripped your life. What do you make of this? Is it something that you'd want to think about it much deeper? James chapter 1, sorry, and verse 2. James 1, 2. You see there, he seems to do this, trials and temptations. I just borrowed that as the heading. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith, so we've been talking about adding to your faith, now we're talking about the testing of your faith. It does something. It develops perseverance. And look at verse 4. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking any, anything. If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given him. But you see how there's a connection there. And I think that we could apply that to ourselves when we start to embark upon the business of adding to our faith. Moving on much quicker. Godliness in, in verse 6. It's a right attitude to God. Look, 
He's not a taskmaster. He's good. He is good. And in his denial of legitimate things to you and to me, he is still good. And one day our faith will give way to sight and we'll understand and we'll repent that we complain so much. Godliness is a right attitude to God, firstly. But secondly, godliness is a right attitude to each other. We take God's goodness and we share that in our human relationships. A right attitude towards others. Godliness. Brotherly, sisterly kindness. Verse 7. This is not a sort of ivory palace of theological, the, the ivory tower, if you like, of theological correctness. It is, if you like, prevention, not warfare, but the harsh reality, the grind of daily life, where we choose to be vulnerable. Kindness, because people will take you for granted. Tell me about it, you say. Well, then, if they do say, but I am doing it for someone greater than you, by the way. And lastly, it's interesting, isn't it, the way that we always keep this. It's the, it's the icing on the cake. It's the thing that seems to envelop all this love. Top of the rung. Kept. Do you remember the, when we started on this series of chains, we looked at, um, at that verse in uh, 1 Corinthians 16 uh, and verse 13 that says, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, and then the last, do everything in love. Do everything in love. We need to do that. That is an integral part of our faith. Do it in love. It's a great list, isn't it? And we've covered it. But it is the way that we develop fruitful life. And that's the process. Even if we've got gaps, we can go back again. The point that surely Peter's making that we need to appreciate here is this, that where there is life, there is faith. And where there is faith, there is growth. And where there's growth, there is change. The big question, of course, is this. Are we willing, really? Or do we like the comfort zone? So, three questions as we, as we conclude very quickly. You know, there used to be a big watch clock there, didn't there? And that's terrible. It's gone. There's, um, I, I'm sure you've heard the story about the person who took a friend to church and they did all sorts of things like where you kneel and what happens when you bow and so on and so on. And the, then the, the vicar took his watch off from the person and said, what does that mean? He said, it doesn't mean anything at all. And uh, I know, it doesn't really, but I'm putting it here. It's a bit late. We're rounding it off. Okay, three things. Practical application. As you think, and you get the answers in the passage. I'm not just bringing it to you. I'm bringing it from the passage to you in that way. Okay? So, practical application. With, we put these, in varying degrees, these seven things. We pursue them. First of all, there will be greater fruitfulness. 
you see, let, let me read verse 8 so that you, you've got this. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure. Now, in varying degrees, fair enough. It's not just simply a list when you pass the exam and say, that's it, I'm there. No, no, you go over these again and again. It's not like that. But if you have them in varying, increasing measure, they will do something. Something will happen to you. What? Well, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. That's what it does. This list does something. So, greater fruitfulness, first of all. You know, there is no excuse for laid-back religion. There's no sense at which we could say, I've arrived. The danger, of course, is that the Christian becomes like the wheat that Jesus spoke about. It's promising, it's growing, it's looking good, but the cares of this world choke it and frustrate and prevent its growth. Fruitfulness. We can be choked by these weeds and the result is there's no fruit, there's no growth, there's no change. And as you read verse 8, you see the positive is applied negatively. Can, is that help? Let me read verse 8 and you think about that. The positive is applied negatively. For this reason, if you possess these qualities, the seven that we've listed, um, these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective. Do you see what he's saying? In other words, that's what you will become. That's what you will become. We need to cultivate these. We need to add to it. We need to work at it. Secondly, we need clearer vision. This is, if, if I can use the word almost, if you look at it superficially, this, this verse is, is, is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction. Look, what do you make of verse, verse 9? Does it make sense? Let me read it to you. But if anyone does not have them, this list, in varying degrees, okay, he is nearsighted and blind. How can you be nearsighted and you're blind? You're not nearsighted. So what, what, we, what have we got here? I sort of struggled a bit with this. And, um, so uh, the commentaries are often helpful, and there's an excellent commentary by Michael Green, the former vicar at St. Aldith in Oxford. And um, in his commentary, he says this. Now, let me give it to you, so that, and hopefully it's helpful. Just quote it, and then we'll move on. If a man is blind, how can he be short-sighted? If Peter had this in mind, he may mean that such a man is blind to heavenly things and engrossed in the earthly. He cannot see what is afar off, but only what is near. Stop there for a moment. If I was now, I was sitting with John when we were re I was reading his Bible, and if I was now to exchange my spectacles with you, John, we'd both be in trouble. Because one is nearsighted and one is farsighted. It's, it's no good looking through the lens of somebody else, is it? Now, okay, I don't think that's very helpful, but you know what I'm saying. This, right, stay with it. But probably Peter was thinking that such a man is blind because he willfully closes his eyes to the light. The old saying is, none so blind as those who refuse to see. None so blind. So do you see that? Spiritual blindness descends upon the eyes with such 
in, in the eyes which deliberately look away from the graces of, and the character of God which is in Jesus Christ. Clear vision. Some Christians see only their church. Some Christians see only their experience. Some Christians see only their denomination. That's what he's saying here. You've narrowed it down. Broaden it out. Be inclusive. Jesus once rebuked his disciples. Well, he often did in love, I'm sure. But on the occasion when Jesus met a woman of ill repute and she was a Samaritan, they're horrified. Can't do that. Can't say that. Can't go there. And in his reply, the woman, uh, at the, well, the Samaritan woman, he, the disciples go into the town to get some food and he'd been talking and so on. And I'll just break into this. The disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Because they'd gone to fetch food and he said, uh, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And then Jesus said this, do not say four months more and then the harvest? Question mark. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Can't you see? A harvest of Samaritan people and the woman who goes to the back to her home and says, Come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? They were blind to that. And we can be. Now, of course, the Lord forgive them and he forgives us as well, our blindness. To open our lives and open our eyes as well as our hearts. And finally, a firmer foundation. Come back to uh, our, our reading and uh, you, you, you have this reference here. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to make you calling an election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. Perhaps the next time, I hopefully you'll be gracious and, and understanding when you meet a Christian who says, well, I've lost my faith and, well, I, you know, I've given it all up. It's not for me and so on. Try to say, you know, the the New Testament speaks about that. It does happen sometimes. You need help. Why don't you talk about it? A firm foundation. You see, put it like this. A clearer vision, a firm foundation. If you drive with impaired vision, you'll crash. That's not terribly clever, but it's true. If you sit an exam with impaired vision, you'll fail. You can't see the question. How can you write? What can you do? The growing Christian walks with a humble confidence that he will not fall, ultimately. They'll stumble, there'll be difficulties and setbacks and trials, constantly, sure. But you'll not fall will not fall. But he knows where he's going. The, this whole idea of falling, you know, is to do with knowing, seeing where you're going. It's terrible if you grow up in the dark, isn't it? so easy to fall and bump into things. 
just think as we close. The blessings of being a growing Christian. Think of the things you enjoy. And think what it's like to live below par. It's pretty poor, isn't it? Don't be like that. Go for first things. And the second things are thrown in. Go for those and you lose out on everything. Fruitfulness. Vision. Security. And that's all part of, if you like, adding to our faith. Let's be sure that we do that.